0: podcast is part of the sports social podcast network
1: the simplest definition of motivation boils down to wanting that's according to social psychologist roy baumeister in 2016 in sport it's often the driving force behind a successful athlete that motivation to get up every morning work hard practice and in some cases win a medal even gold as we've seen throughout the summer
2: our great British athletes like Tom Daly, Laura Kenny, Adam Peaty, Kadina Cox, Sarah Story and Emma Raducanu often inspire. But ultimately, with more than four in ten adults in the UK not doing the recommended amount of exercise every week, how do we get people to want to be
1: active? I'm Michael. And I'm John. And we want to find out. So welcome to this very special edition of Anything But Footy, the Olympic and Paralympic podcast. And
2: we're live at the 2021 UK Active Conference at the Guildhall in the wonderful city of London. We're in person, we're with each other, we have some great guests, and we're even in a room full of people, not on Zoom.
1: Yeah, and talking of sitting staring at a screen, during the past 18 months of the COVID pandemic, more than a quarter of the UK population has reported a deterioration in their eating and sleeping, which of course all impacts on activity.
2: This episode of the podcast, we want to explore what motivates people to take up healthy and fit lifestyles and what the physical activity sector and government can do to encourage people to keep active and stay healthy.
1: We're joined by Anthony Wells, Head of Political and Social Research at YouGov.
2: Professor David Halpin, Chief Executive of the Behavioural Insights Team. Dr Anouska
1: Pachava, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Vitality.
2: Dr Will Norman, the Mayor of London's Walking and Cycling Commissioner, and Dr Jennifer Dixon, Chief Executive
1: at the Health Foundation. Who we started off hearing from about how to motivate people away from their sedentary lifestyles.
0: When we ask the question, what motivates us all to exercise more, I think there's almost a pre-question, which is what stops us. We can't get childcare, we don't have a green space, uh, the crime levels mean that you don't want to go out after dark. You're holding down two jobs and you don't have the time to exercise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we must focus as much on the kind of campaigns for willpower and spend more time, actually, on the equivalent of the obesogenic environment for exercise. And that means not just government action, although government does need a strategy. Um, we can talk about that later but it's also business, as we know. It's also investors as well um, who can help to encourage this as well as individuals.
1: So it's not just about obesity, David, is it? You're a behavioural expert. How do you motivate yourself? Get motivated.
3: Yeah, you mentioned in your remarks, Baumeister, he's famous for his work on willpower and almost to echo Jennifer's remarks, is that's the whole point. Willpower is necessary because something's a bit difficult. You have to like actually physically get yourself off the sofa and do something, right? Which is... Hence, Baumeister talks about it. So a pretty good thing. We sometimes use a very simple mnemonic, actually. East. You might think about these four basic things. Easy, attractive, social, timely. The first one is definitely make it easy. How can you make it as easy as possible to do something? Like, do I have to wear on different clothes? Oh, my God, that's a friction. Every, every little friction you put in makes it more difficult. Is there a cycling lane? You know, right there or whatever. So it's often... Neglected. It's unbelievably important. Um, attractive. How do you make it um, appealing? Having an elite athlete often is not a very good thing for most people. It's fantastic to watch on TV, but you think, well, it never occurred to you. You'll be that person. So what's a, a reasonable goal? How can you use incentives? Maybe we'll come back to that. There's a lot of very powerful recent evidence suggesting you can use quite small incentives to drive extra evidence social what's everybody else doing some of the most effective incentives are also tied with what the group is doing and then timely timely what's the right moment how fast do you get the reward how do you build in even the time of year you know so google searches on diet have two very very distinct spikes one is immediately after Christmas. Oh my God, I can't believe how much I ate. And then the second one, actually, just before summer. It's like, I'm gonna go on a beach, wait a minute, this is a disaster. I'm fat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Will, I saw you nodding along to that. You are the walking and cycling commissioner. And I was mindful of some words that that Tani used in her keynote, actually, where we are inspired by Neil and Laura Fackey. We are inspired by Jason Kenny and Laura Kenny. But how can we actually then change that, to get that moment of inspiration in the early hours of the morning watching something in Tokyo, to get those people cycling and walking here today and not doing what I did, which is get on a train or get in a car.
4: So I think there are two structural ways where we can tackle the sort of physical inactivity crisis we find ourselves in. One is around structurally, how do we get kids more active? We've got the most inactive generation of kids in history, how do we get them more active? And that has to be about enjoying it and fun. Um, and I think the second point is around how do we integrate physical activity into our everyday lives, yeah? Now, that is not necessarily about scoping out more leisure time for more, more football sessions or more running or that. It's actually about active travel. How do we design that activity into our lives and our towns and cities? And as David said, you know, we – I would add an extra caveat to, to David's east is to add an S, which, another S, which is safety. And we know that the biggest barrier for more people cycling in London is not feeling safe. We have to make our streets safer. Over the past decades, one of the biggest changes that have happened in the UK is a massive proliferation of car journeys every day. Historically, most people used to walk to school. Today, quarter of a million car journeys every morning are associated with the school run. How do we make those streets safer so that people will cycle more, take the opportunity? And we know when there's safer cycle infrastructure in, where there's safer walking infrastructure, people use it. And for me, that's the gateway drug. Active travel is the gateway drug to more activity and more sport. Sometimes sport, I think David touched on it, sport can put people off being active. Seeing the Laura Kenney, seeing these super athletes who've de- devoted all their lives to be active, that feels so far away from me in lockdown when I was slumped on the sofa watching Netflix and trying to do my work, you know. That was so far removed. But actually, you know, how do I get out of the car, take a few, a, a bit of a walk, walk to the shops, walk to school, psych, do a bit of cycling, those small steps, and then as I get fitter, so actually I'd quite like to do a bit more of this. And that's where the sort of of the environment which uh, UK Active provide, and all the members have a role to play in in terms of getting those people who are getting a bit more active to, to then diversify and do different activities and have fun.
2: Just for the record, I cycle today. I don't know how many others did.
4: <laughs> Me too. Very <laughs> good. I knew you.
2: <laughs> Anthony, I just want to bring you in here because Listening to what Will was saying there, how do we then, from a policy point of view, get that messaging out to members of the public that there are safe spaces, there are safe places, they can go and walk and get on their bike?
5: It's not so much the messaging out there because people see it in their local community. If we go and look around say the thing that Boris Johnson, his big thing now, is levelling up, and what he'll want to do is provide things that people see in a local community to demonstrate levelling up. If you ask people what they want, they want a nicer town centre. And so if you're redeveloping the town centre, that's your opportunity to put in better cycle paths, better walking provisions, places that haven't got cars, places where people can play. So it is there, and it's in the government's interest to do that as part of showing they've levelled up this area.
1: Anushka, am I right in saying ran the London Marathon, the youngest ever?
6: Second youngest.
1: Second youngest ever. And that was
6: a long, long time ago, so I'm sure someone's (laughs) gone and done more this year. So
1: what motivated you then and, and what motivates you now? And do you agree with the panelists that it's not just a question of that?
6: I do agree, actually, and I think for me, the question that I ask myself every day in my day job working at Vitality and as a physician when I worked in the NHS is around, not really how do you motivate, but whose responsibility is it to motivate? Is it just the government? Is it just employers? Is it a combination of both? And and particularly now with the environment changing, what does the role insurers and and other bodies play in that motivation piece? But more importantly than whose role is it is how do you frame that motivation problem? Because different elements of society and different members of society regard motivation as as very different um, psychological kind of uh, pieces. And everyone has a different, different kind of uh, driver within themselves. And what do I mean by that? So for us, it, a Vitality, and, and particularly something that you know, I thought about a lot when I was running the marathon a long time ago, was around framing the motivators. Is it you're trying to avoid a loss? So is it a loss incentive? Or is it you're trying to gain something? Is it a gain incentive? Or is it actually a combination of both? And just to bring that to life a little bit, when I'll, I'll tell you my own story. For me, it was my brother had bet me. he'd run it the year before I'm three uh, weeks older than him, minus a year, and basically I wanted to, to take over his title. So for me, it was the, the bet that you know I wanted to lose my not lose against my brother, but also the gain of, well, I got a title. I got the accolade, and it meant that you know till hopefully this year, it, it wasn't contested. If we take that into the real world, some studies we've done at Vitality have been around that exact problem. Loss incentive versus gain incentive, or a combination of both. And what we have found is that by offering people rewards, you can motivate them. Those that are enticed by rewards, be it Champlies Resort or um, discounts on your weight row shopping or gym memberships, they are incentivized to then engage with physical activity. But it wasn't just the rewards that triggered behavior. We actually found, by adding in the loss incentive, something as simple as a fitness tracker device like an Apple Watch, we encouraged people further. And it was the combination of the rewards that helped me gain and give me value in life, versus the, actually, I don't want to pay that extra £12.50 a month for my watch. If I do more exercise, I don't pay the £12.50, I get the watch discounted and or for free, that drove people towards 34% higher activity levels. And for me, it's, it's that combination of understanding your population, understanding whose responsibility it is to, to drive the behavior change in that population, and then framing the problem in a way that it's meaningful for that population.
1: What was your marathon time?
6: Well, the first time I did it was uh, five hours, 34 minutes, but I did break my knee at eight miles, so I had a complete excuse, and I ended up walking on crutches for the next three weeks. <laughs>
1: incredible with a
6: medal around my neck
1: <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I know Will has got to go and speak to the mayor uh in a moment so I wanted to just leap ahead a little bit uh with your commissioner hat on what with the white paper coming out later what is it that the government should be doing
4: leveling up I think we need a definition and understanding of what it is uh, to begin with but I think everybody accepts that um for me the leveling up agenda is a it was touched upon earlier, of how do you integrate physical activity, the public health crisis that's been exposed through COVID, the inequalities that exist. This is not the work of one government department and one white paper. This has to be integrated across all the agendas. That's what we've done in London and put this agenda in our planning, in our business, in our environmental, in our transport plans. Health fits at the very centre of those because health isn't... You can treat health through the health system, But prevention, in terms of health, uh, goes far more and crosses every different sector and we all have a role to play in it.
2: And Jennifer, I know you too have another engagement, but I want to build on that point of levelling up because research suggests that people in some of the less deprived areas of our communities have a lot less life expectancy than some of those that live in our better off, well off areas. How do we then get those messages that Will's talking about into those communities?
0: So first thing is just for people to notice, there's a big study out today on the BBC News, actually, uh, which shows the difference in life expectancy in poorer compared to richer. So a woman in Camden will live 20 years longer than a woman in um, Leeds, for example. I mean, it's quite stunning and healthy life expectancy. The gap is even greater at, at that small level. So it's a big, big issue. Um, I think with, with in terms of levelling up, I think the first thing we want is that health features in the levelling up agenda. It doesn't seem to at the moment. All the mood music is that it won't directly. It's more focused on economic capital not green capital, not social capital, not human health capital. It's all mostly on economic capital, a little bit of social. Um, so it needs to feature, and just as just has been said, we need a serious cross-government strategy, which involves local government to improve health in a variety of different ways, and we need to set it up for the long-term with some short-term gains. I mean, it's in a sense, it's simple, Um, And the the, the strategy should be to achieve better health and life expectancy plus five, which is the government's own target by 2020-35, but also to reduce inequalities in health. And we don't have a strategy to reduce inequalities in health at the moment. And the other final thing is that there is, I think, rather a cognitive bias in prevention policy that we've had over the last few years which is the bias towards individual agency and away from responsibility of local national government and indeed business and investors and that's also what needs to change that's a longer term agenda
2: and David we heard the word simple being used there you wrote how small changes can make a big difference so what are those small simple changes that we might see in this white paper that would deliver that return on the necessary investment
3: well it's at once in people's lives right which probably people in the room will know better than me is that if you're trying to change a habit or bring a new one you normally form some kind of scaffolding around it which is where incentives and things can come in so can you build these extra cues, supports particularly if you can make it easier at the individual level um and air miles of course a fascinating way of using using instead of money using something else which actually can be quite a small incentive in financial terms, but can have quite a big impact. You know, executives taking extra flights they don't need in order to keep their precious gold card or whatever lounge. So it, it can be relatively small things if they constructed world well, can have a big difference, but as important is the knock-on consequence of how it changes the behaviour of firms and others. So when you start saying, actually, let's have a, a walk to, you know, walk into school and work day, let's try and do that, and then will the firm change? Or will businesses, you know, start to use other kinds of techniques as they make it easier to have meetings where you can move around or whatever? So you can, the pressure is not just actually on the individual behavior. It's back on other kind of key players to, to make it easier to make the other kinds of changes to reinforce it. And if you put those things together, especially on the obesity side, let's be clear, you got to, it's a lot easier to take the calories out at source than to walk up and down steps all day, take them out. But if you put them together, and Singapore is the great hope, right? Singapore has shown it's been able to achieve these reversals in BMI, and it's very much from a combination of exercise-based stuff and also focus big changes
1: on diet and reformulation. Anthony, I don't want you to feel like you're the voice of the
5: people, but you are YouGov, so what do people want to see? If you ask people what they want they, wanted, they want it. they want levelling up and so forth to be about jobs, and they want it to be about the town centre. So they don't, health, they don't want, they don't say they want health in there. They don't say, but um, um, people aren't always very good judges of what they do want. Um, my, my 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 boss always uses that, that Henry Ford quote: of, "If you are, if you ask people what they wanted before the car was invented, they'd have said not a car, they would have said I want a faster horse." So. It doesn't mean that you know, what the public want now doesn't mean that the government can't give them something else that they would like. It may not be at the front of their mind when they say, uh, they say town centre. They don't say, I want to cycle paths. I don't want to be able to walk more easily. They do say safety. Mind safety is very important at the front of their minds. But if you give them something that's cycling and they get the opportunity to cycle afterwards, they may be grateful even though they didn't know beforehand. Anushka, when the
1: government went into lockdown and announced. You know, the country is grinding to a halt. Um, there was some fear. And I think, David, um, you spoke to the Lords about it and said that uh, people were going to be fairly compliant, I think was the quote that you used, David. And I think people were during lockdown. They were f- fearful some, of somewhat of COVID. Why are we not fearful of being unhealthy? Why are we not, oh, if we're active, we'll actually not be unwell?
6: It's a really great question. I think it, it goes back to psychology, but also what we see in our environment. And it's something that Jennifer mentioned earlier. It's the environment we live in, where we have through media, through advertising, through what we see around us on a day-to-day ba- basis, almost normalised and accepted that BCD is, is, is a part of the, the world we live in right now. COVID was a shock to the system. And actually, to, to one of my fellow panelists' points, what COVID did was trigger this new interest in health. If you look at Google search findings, health was one of the most Googled term all the way through 2020 and through 2021. And the variations of health, you know, am I healthy? Is it a cough? What can I do to get healthier were streams that we were starting to see. So I think for me, it's, it's a fundamental change in the environment, but I do think we need to reinvigorate the discussion around what is healthy and not only physical health and not only, you know, what you see aesthetically, but also for me critically that mental health piece, which COVID again brought back onto the agenda because if I'm not mentally healthy, if I'm not motivated, if I'm not, you know, energised to get out of bed in the morning, if I've got low mood, I'm not going to get up and do the steps regardless of how many cycle lanes you put in place. So how do we target health as a holistic Paragram rather than just thinking about you know the exercise piece, and I think that's the critical critical change.
2: I'm conscious of time, and we do want to open up to the floor very quickly. So before we do that, just one going,
4: final point. I was going Will? to add one final thought that hasn't been brought up from us as a panel is that my back. I started off my my career as an anthropologist, as a social anthropologist, and. Um, You know, I think we need to be careful that we're not treating everybody as operating entirely as individuals, yeah? behaviour change and the sort of changes that we need to have in a society also are, you know, sorry, social networks and our, and, our, and our social groups are really important in terms of driving some of those changes on a behavioural level. So while there are incentivized programmes that work for people as individuals, I think it's absolutely essential that we tap the sort of initiatives that are being proposed or that work really well into those networks and particularly those networks for people who are the least active or the most disadvantaged in terms of health, mental health, uh, Perspectives, And I'll, it's, it's not entirely always straightforward how to do this. I'll give you an example. There was a great... There's a wonderful project. Mo- I met a wonderful person working with uh, Muslim women in the East End of London, and she set up a Muslim women's cycling club. And lo and behold, the three Muslim women in this community that cycled came to that club, and that was it. When she took her... What she wanted to do and plugged it into an, in, in, in an existing social network through the mosques and didn 't even mention cycling. they had a family fun day in the mosques that involved some bikes in a park and some other things. Dozens of people came, but it wasn 't just a one off because of that social network. people kept coming back because it was part of their social it was their social environment that sustains it so suddenly you had a whole group of people regularly doing this. Without, you know, and, But working with the existing social networks, the existing frameworks which people could do, and, and with people that they know, they relate to, they've got their own mentors and role, role models and community leaders. So I think it's exceptionally important that we don't sort of bring the mountain to Mohammed, as it were. We need to take Mohammed... You know, we need to do it the other way around and plug into those existing networks to drive change. Anushka?
6: And I fully support that, actually. And I've got a, another real-life example... Um, I'm doing an executive MBA at the moment, and we have a group of us who are all doing executive MBA, and somehow we've managed to fit in a fitness within that. So we have a, a WhatsApp group called Fitties and we challenge each other. We participate in tracker challenges. And what I realized in a discussion we had subsequently on that was questioning my own accountability. Because who am I accountable for in terms of my fitness? Maybe when I was 18 it was myself and potentially you know, competing against my brother, but right now I'm accountable to a much broader network, I'm accountable to my friends, I'm accountable to my employer to, to you know, turn up every day and, and not you know, uh, take sick days, etc. And I'm accountable to, I guess, society as a whole and I feel that accountability having worked in the NHS that you know, I don't want to be the next statistic or I don't want to be a high cost driver of health services. And I think driving that accountability is is so key in creating that network of accountability.
2: I am key to get a thought from each of you, but I just want to see if there are any questions from the floor at this stage. Does anybody have any thoughts, anything they would like to put to our panel?
4: Um, Hi, everyone. Richard Sloggett from Future Health. Um, My question is on what we can learn from the COVID vaccine rollout and the public engagement That is still ongoing around that with regards to how we can improve our overall health and particularly amongst communities who it has been arguably harder to engage in that vaccine program
0: yeah well i think the the prevailing environment is one of fear of uh, illness of, of covid isn't it and in a sense that helps spur motivation to go forwards for vaccination Um, in most parts of the country, the NHS provided a pretty easy service. You got pinged by a GP and then you went along and it was easy to arrange. So I think ease is is another one. Um, And I think in some areas where there were very hard to reach groups, there's been incredible efforts by local public health departments, exactly as was said earlier, with networks of communities to try to encourage leaders in those communities, whether they're religious, ethnic... Uh, age, whatever it is, um, to come forwards. And so it's a combination of factors, I would say, that um, we have led. By. I mean, we're still, I was looking at the figures this morning, you know, when it comes to the percentage of population fully vaccinated, we're not, uh, we're not at the top any longer. So there's still a long way to go. But I think you're right, the the the, the fearful groups um, need to be, there needs to be role models coming out of those communities and strengthen networks, to, and in, including to make it easy as, as well.
3: So quickly, I mean, there's one thing which is not a lesson, right, which is a vaccination for the most part is a one or two, maybe three shot game. And the thing about exercise is you're supposed to keep doing it, right? Um, we touched on this earlier about motivation. It is literally, you know, humans are characterized by discounting, you, you know. Things are in, the, in the present are worth more than things even in a very short time in the future. Exercise is exactly the wrong way around, right? If I, if I do some real effort now, I'll be fitter and better in the future. Whereas that cream cake in front of me, well, that's easy. Um, so you have to overcome that kind of that, that, that barrier. And in fact, literally, people genuinely intend to exercise tomorrow all the time. They just never get that right? Um, but COVID has a bigger lesson, which is it's disrupted habits. So much of this we're talking about is habit-based behavior. And your best play is you want to kind of routinize your exercise because you're going to walk, you're going to cycle. And it's massively disrupted everyone's habits, right? So there is clearly a moment and a degree of motivation and interest in health where you can say, well, why would we go back to what we did before? And you remember, it's a famous example when the tube stopped for two days in London, it led to 1 in 20 people permanently changing their habits and often walking instead, right? And that's for two days. We just had a year, a year and
0: a half. If you look at the figures of who exercised more during lockdown, during the pandemic, it was the um, uh, higher socioeconomic groups uh, increased from 23 minutes a day to 32 minutes. The lowest income groups stayed exactly the same at 16 minutes. So there, there is a differential here that needs to be... Yeah. Absolutely. Anushka.
6: Just to touch on, I guess, two points. For me, I think also with the COVID vaccine, there was a loss framing incentive. So we were told to travel, you needed to be vaccinated, and you saw an uptick in the amount of people who got vaccinated, particularly in the younger populations. No one wanted to lose their freedom. And although there are still some subgroups, and actually David and I talked about this first thing this morning, who are still, you know, uh, resistant to the vaccine for various reasons, either hesitancy or the... the um, apathy of can't be bothered syndrome. Um, I think critically for me as well is that loss framing incentive motivated certain population cohorts, and what other loss framing incentives could we put in place to resonate with other factions of the cohorts remains to be seen. And to touch on the, I guess, the second point around is it financial, is it something else? I think seeing the benefit, as, as David mentioned, of Turning off services to change that behavior and make it more habitual is key. And what we saw with Vitality, again, referring to some work we did, is those people who only relied on a workout app to trigger their exercise actually took longer post-lockdown to return to what was benchmark levels versus those that had an app and a tracker. And that's an interesting piece. That you know, those who had an app and a tracker, regardless of I think socio-economic group, although you know, acknowledge that there's a, a, a caveat there with those that are privately medically insured are genuinely of a, a higher socio-economic group. You'd appreciate. But what we noticed there, it wasn't just the app. They needed that added bonus of awareness, education, etc., via the tracker. To drive that behavior. And they got out of lockdown quicker and they physically mobilized quicker as a result of having those two devices or those two inputs.
2: One more question from the floor before we need to wrap up. We have a question from a gentleman over here
1: James Taylor from TaylorMade Designs. Um, I was pleased to hear earlier you said, uh, someone said about incorporating um, incentives into businesses, about cycle to work schemes, one of them that you picked up on. Uh, I've had a few people. I've got 35 staff. I've had about half a dozen of them take up that cycle-to-work scheme, put in all the racks outside work and everything. Trouble, as soon as it rains, they bring the car in again. Um, with, with going back to the, uh, the tracker, the watches, I mean, what's stopping the government buying everyone a tracker watch? So we all know how much exercise we need to do, how much we're doing, benefits to our health and whatnot. Not an Apple watch, necessarily, but... How much is it going to cost to do that?
0: Can't we do that on our iPhones anyway? Step count, things like that. So we've mentioned a a few
3: times Singapore, actually. So Singapore basically has done that. Um, More than a million people, so it's about 20% or so of the population have taken part in their scheme and they've gamified it. Um, what's really interesting is the tracker alone doesn't do it, generally the evidence suggests. So it's a tracker combined with some kinds of often social incentives, particularly for people, because you, you want to calibrate it to the right level. We've actually found um, some interventions we've done. You can get the least active to increase the most if you combine some trackers with certain kinds of social pooling or groups where you've got these kind of comparison effects. But, um, so, you know, can can we really go with it. I mean, it's open question. Should the government do that? Should it not? Interesting at least what we should do is figure out what's the return, how well would it work Um, but you do have to lock it in with these other elements I think
6: I think for me it's the challenge of and we were reflecting on one of the um, quotes up there on the wall actually that says serve and obey and it's that challenge of obey that that would you know governments can go out and give everyone a tracker but how many people in the population would be comfortable obeying that Uh, I think that remains to be a question and I think you know Um, There's a lot around giving away data at the moment, around right to bodily integrity, and and all sorts that are key topics for humanity to discuss. I think making everyone wear a tracker uh, falls into that faction of debate. How many would obey?
5: I think it's a subtle difference between sending everyone one and offering everyone the chance to have a free one, because one is getting a lovely thing for free, and one is being told to do something.
1: One quick question from me. I'm excited, Michael's excited, by the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham next summer. Tani said in her speech at conference today that it was an opportunity, um, although not necessarily, and she admitted it's not for everybody. What opportunity is it that we stage the Commonwealth Games and could, on everything that we've talked about, could we link some of the stuff we've talked about today into the Commonwealth Games.
5: David and Will I think right at the start um, um, said something about a bit of caution about that elite, that link with elite athletes I'm always, um, Anushka used her personal history earlier like, I've I spent um, the majority of my life doing no exercise whatsoever, <laughs> um, I'm probably one of the most unhealthy people at this conference in that sense, now I run 5k a week but the, and when I started exercising the thing that worried me the most was that sort of Exercises for fit people. It's for those other people. It's not for people like me. I'm going to be the really slow, useless one at the end who everybody stares at. And my biggest worry has been the very last person dragging around at the end. And that's what, say, so something like This Girl Can, that campaign was brilliant because it was focused on ordinary people. It's exercises for everyone, not just for elite people who are, frankly, you know, faster and quicker and better at it than the people we are targeting that message at.
6: I think I agree. For me, it's the three key principles of anything we do in society. How do we make it accessible? How do we make it inclusive? And how do we make it diverse? And having champions that address all those points that aren't elite athletes, they are the normal population, your everyday person that humans can resonate with, I think is the key piece. But equally, and I say this coming from you know a private sector institute, is that again going back to um, a point i made earlier whose responsibility is it and how do we bring all the stakeholders together to collaborate you know is it public private policy partnerships is it broader than that do charities play a part of course they do i think that's the key bit that we're missing
3: so humours are really wonderful things right <laughs> what actually motivates us is sports something you see? watch on TV, right, or is it something you do? And one of the interesting things is to what extent do you do this overtly? For a lot of people, for a teenager to tell them you should go and exercise because you're healthy is almost one of the worst things you could do. Let's, let's go outside and get covered in mud, right, and mess around, right? And then incidentally, by the way, you've accidentally got some exercise. And for a lot of people, that's a more effective way of doing it is to find the incidental route. Um, and just to link it even more brutally, I remember years ago talking to a senior figure in the Department of Health, and we were talking about incentives to get people to quit smoking. And he's like, what are you talking about? If people don't quit smoking, they're probably going to die from it. What possible alternative incentive are you going to come up to beat that? But in the weird and wonderful world of human beings, actually it can make a difference, particularly to get that first step, that initiation, right? And to I, we mentioned Singapore a few times along the way. Just, I think sometimes we don't believe it's possible. We don't believe it's possible to kind of turn the tide on levels of exercise or activity. And one of the reasons why Singapore is interesting is they've really done it. Their BMI levels have gone down. They weren't that bad. But in terms of even physical exercise, um, active or to intense has doubled. And routine exercise has tripled, right? Just people are walking more, thousands more steps a day. They've kind of done it. And they've done it through this very powerful combination. So we, should, we might not literally copy it, but we can say, well, what are the things which we can take? And maybe we should believe it is possible to make these kind of changes in our society.
0: Just to say, I mean, obviously, Boeingham will inspire lots of people and uh, to 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 think about sport and to uh, take pleasure in it. And that's wonderful. Um, But for people like me, I am the most unsporty person. I switch off the tele. I never watch sport, but I run every day. And I run every day because there's a park quite close, close to where I live. So I hope one of the legacy for people like me uh, would, for, of Birmingham would be that there would be facilities and, uh, and clubs for people to, to join, not necessarily because they want to be a, a, a Commonwealth Games um, gold medal winner.
2: Well, thank you very much to everybody in the room for joining in our discussion. And thank you to all of our guests, Anthony Wells, Professor David Halpin, Dr. Will Norman, Dr. Jennifer Dixon and Dr. Anushka Pachava. Let's hope someone has been listening from the government today, and if they have missed this session, not been listening, maybe in Marbella, it will be available as a podcast, and you can search for Anything But Footy on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, or wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Yeah, sometimes it's easy to sit back and say, I want to be motivated, someone motivate me. But actually, self-motivation is a really important skill as well on so many levels in life. So if you can study and learn it, keep going in the face of adversity, we could all end up in a better, healthy, active country and world. Thank you very much.